Welcome to LaVille. It is series four of the podcast and it is June, June 11th, 2020. And the subject for today's podcast is the economics versus experience of multi-tenant housing in Toronto. We will be joined today by guests Daria Tarhan, Joy Connolly, and a friend of ours, Matt Huff-Deleuze, who is also a fellow villager at York and is coming to share his experience. This podcast will focus primarily on research surrounding rooming houses off campus and the role precariousness plays in housing. These primary topics will be focused on the City of Toronto's role in student housing and the external social, economic, and political factors that contribute to the rise of precarious housing and living conditions. In the context of student housing, different scenario developments will be overviewed to address the current problems associated with multi-tenant housing in the City of Toronto. Additionally, we will explore what steps can be taken for students experiencing precarious housing conditions at York University and how the city is responding to help these students. And, you know, just a quick recap of last week, you know, we spoke about common issues in the village, the lived experience in multi-tenant housing, and it wasn't just us. We were actually joined by a, a whole array, maybe five or six different villagers, um, to also talk about precarious housing living and the positive aspects of living in the village, which are seldom spoken of. But before we go into the economics versus the experience of multi-tenant housing in Toronto, quick shout out and thank you to Professor Louisa Sotomayor, and a student well TO research partnership with the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. Uh, the research is supported and this podcast is supported by a connections grant awarded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. And we're also wanted to thank uh, Research at York, the RAID program at York University. Uh, check out Experience York for more information if you want to know. Uh, definitely something amazing for current students at York University. And welcome. Uh, we're going to introduce our guests. We're going to be joined by uh, Joy Connolly, as we mentioned before, Daria Tarhan, and Matt Huff-Deleuze. Daria Tarhan, who is a PhD candidate in adult education and community development at the University of Toronto, and a sessional lecturer in international, international development studies at Trent University. His work concentrates primarily on cooperatives, the social economy, and other forms of collective and community-based economic activity. Specifically, he's interested in ways in which alternative forms of economic organizations and activity are being employed to address social, economic, and environmental injustices linked to energy, food, and housing systems. His other interests include democratic theory, energy policy, political ecology, social movement learning, and community development. And joining us today as well is Joy Connolly, and Joy is currently working on a project on the economics of grooming houses. Uh, the aim of the work is to advocate for city policies on the legalization and regulation of rooming houses with the aim of preserving and expanding the supply of deeply affordable housing across the city. Though Joy's focus has been in Scarborough, where rooming houses, especially basements, but also whole houses, have become the only housing available to low-income singles, newcomers, seniors, and yes, you guessed it, students. She has recently expanded the scope of her research to encompass as much of the city of Toronto. And more recently, her work landed her a spot at the planning table. And finally, we'll be joined by Matt Huff Deleuze, who is a former York University student. And he's lived in various places in the village uh, over the last three years. During his time there, he had many issues with landlords, uh, resulting in him moving over seven times from in the course of the three years that he spent there. Uh, and he was an environmental studies student at York, uh, like Andrew and myself, until some of those issues just became too much to handle. Uh, so he decided um, that he would move to a place downtown sometime in March. 
and he's been quarantined here for the last couple of months, waiting to be able to return to work. And he's planning to return to York to complete his degree once we're able to go outside again without any distractions of having to deal with landlords and the village. Alrighty, thank you so much for joining us, y'all. So Daria, uh, tell, can you tell us a little bit about your connection to the Student Well TO research project? Sure. So, uh, well, I was hired as a research assistant uh, in uh, last year, actually, uh, and I was hired at the phase where we started doing focus groups with students from all four universities and all of their campuses across Toronto. Uh, so I was responsible uh, in facilitating a lot of those focus group discussions, and then I led the team of both graduate and undergraduate researchers who did the analysis. Uh, on, on the findings from the focus groups. And the focus groups primarily focused on students' uh, lived experiences uh, around issues of housing. Uh, so we listen to students, to what they think their key challenges are, uh, and but we also listen to what solutions they're proactively sort of uh, offering to these issues around housing, uh, and also what they're asking specifically universities and policymakers in terms of housing. Uh, so I was I was um, directly involved in, in conducting the focus groups and, and analyzing. That's wonderful. I mean, thank you so much for your participation in that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges? And we'll focus first on the challenges, and then we'll probably jump to the solutions if you didn't mind. Okay. So I'm going to try to do this in a way that I haven't done before. Uh, so let me let me know if this if this works. Uh, let's say I'm an average Joe student. Okay. And what by average Joe, what I mean is I'm come from a middle income, uh, middle class family, uh, and I'm white. Okay? So in the first year of my university, usually residence is guaranteed. Okay, so I have access to a bed in residences. Sometimes they're a little bit costly. Sometimes they're not really well maintained. Um, however, I still have access to a residence. Now, however, I have to purchase a meal plan as well. And I'm finding that to be actually very expensive uh, and you know now I'm confined to eating at the university and the options often may not be the healthiest uh, the most affordable and in many cases we're hearing the most culturally appropriate so and then my first year is done and now I'm faced with the reality that I do not have guaranteed housing on campus uh, very 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 few students can get it but as Joe, I'm not able to get that, okay? So now I'm faced with the decision of, because I mean, by the way, because the number of students that, that UFT was getting was going up too. So like the chances of actually post first year getting, um, getting on campus housing is very, very, very low. This is what we're hearing. So now I'm faced with the decision of, okay, I got to look for housing, right? Uh, and guess where I am? I'm in Toronto, one of the, the hottest, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes, real estate markets in the world, right? Um, in, you know, not only that prices are, are high, but also very high rates of short-term uh, rental units like Airbnb and other home sharing platforms, right? So I am looking in a very, very limited market, right? Uh, and, and what we heard from students is that uh, a lot of landlords are asking, First of all, you know, just solely based on being a student, a lot of people are facing discrimination because they're saying, oh, may not have the most money, I'd rather rent out to a young professional or something like that. 
And also, we've heard that there, if you want to get it, you have to have uh, all of, maybe in, in many cases, provide all of the rent upfront. Yeah. Let's say if you're renting it for eight months. Mm -hmm. uh, and in a lot of cases, uh, you may not have a credit score yet. So we've heard from, in the case of international students, that who are not able to have those credit scores, or students who are coming from lower income um, families or backgrounds, right, don't have a credit score. Uh, then landlords are also discriminating in, in from that perspective as well. So, you know, I'm either I either find housing and the price price is really high, uh, or I'm actually pushed. If I'm fortunate enough to live with my family, let's say back in Oshawa and and commute uh, back in Scarborough and commute, or actually seek housing, market housing uh, farther away than university. And of course, that causes, especially for students, you know, this is a, it's, it's a student, students want to be close to campus. This is what we heard, right? Because if, if the commute time is long, it's costly, uh, and you cannot also participate as much in, uh, in curricular and extracurricular activities on campus. Um, and, and you're spending a lot of time, especially if you have to drive, you're spending a lot of time. Uh, that you could be studying or, or resting or, or, or what have you. So we heard that a lot of students are actually, um, you know, have taken all their courses on the same day. They're not on campus that much. So they heard that, like we heard that it, it really hurt their academics and extracurriculars. Mm -hmm. So this is just super brief. But remember that I'm the average Joe who's coming from a middle class white family, right? So. Uh, we've heard many stories of economically marginalized students who do not have good credit scores or who can't get a guarantor, mm -hmm. one of their parents or family members as a guarantor, fighting against predatory landlord practices that we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of you know, students who come from middle class background said, hey, I was able to ask my father, who's a lawyer, to, to look over the contract, right? Not, a lot, not everybody have, has access to that. Yeah. If you're an LGBTQ2S community member, um, you know, you face significant discrimination while you're, when you're accessing, right? Um, and, and same thing with, with black students. But one positive thing is that these two groups of students actually organized on Facebook and online communities in sort of passing along uh, safe housing information with each other. Mm. And again, if I'm an international student, most of the time, I don't even know what I'm doing. I, you know, this is my first time looking for housing in Toronto. Uh, I don't have credit score. I don't have family members. Uh, so economic, racial, and social marginalization sort of exacerbate an already pretty dire situation for every student. And I think, I think that that really, really touches on a lot of the challenges that we've actually heard from villagers ourselves, um, some of the things that I think we've both experienced. Um, and I actually thought that it was really interesting that you mentioned, you know, for LGBTQ2+, uh, communities and for black communities they're actually you know creating maybe quote-unquote modes of resistance or, or or ways of trying to you know circumvent some of the discrimination they might face in the housing market in the open market so that kind of brings us to the, the second part of this question you know those seem like some some like ideas for solutions but did students mention any other things that they were doing to kind of deal with with some of the the, the challenges that they were facing I mean, I shouldn't be talking about this. You should be talking about this. <laughs> I should be talking about this. That's okay. I mean, York, York Village Housing Association is pretty much the case we, we offer everywhere, right? So yeah. one thing that I didn't maybe talk enough is 
about is predatory landlord practices. Yes. And this is rampant, especially close to campuses, right? So if it's a four bedroom, you know, building up fake walls and and room dividers and, and renting it out to 16 students and asking for all of rent upfront, which is actually illegal. Uh, not having the building up the code, up the fire code, illegal. Putting stuff in the contract that are completely illegal, right? And if, if you don't have access to sort of that know-how, that expertise, then, then students are like, uh, I really want this place. I really need this place. Okay, I guess, right? So one way that, and I really commend, I, I, every time we talk about it, I say you guys are an amazing experience of this, is, is student organizing and knowledge sharing and solidarity building, right? Mm-hmm. So just flagging, especially in the case of York, it's a bit unique because there's a York village very close by. And you're organizing and passing information along and, and advocating for each other, for yourselves and each other. And we found the same thing. We, like I said, LGBTQ, uh, two plus students, black students have, have similar groups on Facebook saying, listen, this is sort of a safe building or safe landlord, this and that. So there's organizing in that sense. But unfortunately, a lot of the, the manner that students deal with this issue is, is, is working more, right? Because Rent is higher, both on campus and off campus, to cope with it. And you're most likely having student loans, right? So you work more. And that hurts, of course, your curricular and extracurricular. And one thing we heard over and over is how students' well-being, mental and physical, is taking a toll. Uh, And a lot of them are saying it it all comes back to housing. It all comes back to, to lack of housing. Right. We also were going to ask how are some of the ways that they're overcoming housing related issues, but but that's exactly it. They're working more um, and they're just trying to find other almost like market based alternatives to, to support living in this market. Right. Um, so I think okay. I think that brings up a lot. And then I, I, I mean, speaking about students who are living, you know, in student housing and are living in the village, Matt. I was wondering if you might be open to sharing a little bit about your experience in the village. You know, are, are you currently a resident? Tell us a little bit about that. So yeah, I moved into the village in September in 2017, and I had the same landlord as Andrew did here. So we kind of have a similar experience with this person, but uh, it was basically maybe like a three by six room in the basement. And right when I moved there, immediately I noticed that the window to the room was broken. And so it's September, right? So it's going to get cold soon. So I'm messaging the landlord about it. They do nothing about it, right? eventually there's so many issues with the house there's bugs there's somebody smoking crack in the room next to me mm-hmm. and they have a child there and the landlord just doesn't care like none of these are none of this is an issue to the landlord right the bugs are not their problem the bathroom we had a toilet and it wasn't even secured to the floor like you could just move it it was ridiculous So I told the landlord after two months of living there, I'm moving out, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that I want my last month's rent back. So they don't give me my last month's rent back at the end of that month. Mm -hmm. And they basically told me, we are just going to move all your stuff out 15 days before the end of the month. Like halfway through the month, they took all my stuff that was in my room. Yes. And they just put it in the common area in the basement. And to clarify, you gave you gave your sixty days notice, like everything that you were. Required yeah, to yeah. I was like, I'm leaving. You clearly don't care about any of the issues here. I'm gonna find a new place. Yeah. They were like, okay, fine. And then they just did that randomly. Like I came home one day and found it like that. 
was it was it like the end of the month was it like an opportunity maybe for them to get another tenant i think it was like it was like november 15th it was like halfway through the month so i had paid them for that month because i was going to stay until the end of the month and leave at the end so they still had my last month's rent yeah and on top of that if i remember correctly didn't uh, wasn't someone else using your bed like a couple days after you had got kicked out yeah yeah so they left the mattress in there and they had taken all my other stuff out and I got all my stuff and moved to storage, right? And I was trying to get the mattress, but they had moved somebody else into the room the same day that they moved all the stuff out. So I was like, my bed is in there. You have to give it to me. And this guy wanted to call the cops and all this, but then the other people in the house were like, no, no, no it's his, right? So I got my mattress, which was all right. But now I have nowhere to live. So I end up moving in with Andrew here for... <laughs> How long? Maybe a month and a half? I think it was, yeah, somewhere around like a month or so. Yeah. Yeah. So I live on the couch in the kitchen for a <laughs> month and there's all kinds of crazy things going on at the house while I'm living there. Mm-hmm. There's a guy who drinks two-fifths of vodka and comes home at 2 a.m. every morning and has has his party or whatever. And then there's writing on the walls and lipstick, stealing flyers from York and making murals on the walls everywhere. And it's basically just a disgusting place to live. And it's like a serious health hazard. Like this guy moved out maybe two weeks after I found my own place, something like that. Yeah. And yeah, so that was my first experience with my first place. And quickly, quickly, before we get into the next experience, what what drew you to these places, right? Because obviously maybe, you know, you you would have had like some preconceptions. It was really, really the that. reason I got that place. And I knew it was as small as it was, right? Yeah. It was cheap at yeah. the end of the day. It was like $500 a month. Okay. So I basically only got that place because I came late and got it like the week before like school started. Mm-hmm. I just didn't plan it well. Mm-hmm. Right. And do you feel like, because you were a student at York that time, and I believe that you were, did you live on student residence at any point in time? Yeah, first year I lived on res. That was, that was okay. But really the meal plan is expensive, like he said before. Yeah, Derek. Like that was like the main thing. And it didn't actually last me the entire year because the food on campus is expensive. It's bad for you and it's expensive because mm-hmm. it's at York. Everything, it seems like everything at York has an upcharge almost it's at York if you haven't noticed the fast food places are more expensive than elsewhere in the city no yeah no absolutely they're definitely price gouged just because of and the thing is like students will buy it right because they really don't have they have their meal plan right like this is what I'm supposed to buy yeah exactly and you can't really cook you can't buy groceries for yourself you know where to really do that yeah no and there's no actual kitchen to even cook or store anything either because it's shared in between i mean i want to say a couple hundred residents within one building so yeah the access was never there i mean even when i lived at vanier if you recall you know like we can never cook there there was never any facility the most you can make is craft dinner yeah the best i can make is craft dinner and that's you know given like the limited uh dishes and whatnot that we had but uh yeah you're uh just both mentioning the other experience that you had there so the second place wasn't as bad, but the landlord, she lived upstairs and basically just wanted to be involved in everything that was happening in her basement. Because she had four people living in, I don't know, the tiniest basement you can imagine. And she'd basically just split two closets into two rooms. And then she had like one real room down there. 
So it wasn't really the greatest situation. Yeah. And basically she just had an issue with like me having people over and stuff, right? She was like, oh, it has to be quiet. You know, I live upstairs and all this. But like, you know, you live, you know where you, who you're renting to, right? Like you're, you're renting a university students. They're going to have friends. Like that's just the way things are. Yep. Basically after that, I moved out and that was it for that place. It wasn't that bad, that experience. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the third place I lived in, I only lived there for three months because somebody had reserved it for September, right? And I didn't have anywhere else to go because my parents don't live in the country. See. My parents live in New York and my dad moved out of the country to Costa Rica. So I had nowhere to go. So I had to just find a place right away because I had to leave. Sorry, just, just quickly asking, did you feel like, um, you know, being a York University student throughout most of that and, you know, also you know, being from the city of Toronto, did you feel like either of those institutions, either the city or York University, were like actively engaged in the village at all or present or trying to make, you know, your experience off campus? Uh, if anything, if anything, York tries to just itself in the village and all the things that happen they don't provide any support to students having issues in the village right Mm -hmm. and you know it's hard for them to understand the level of issues happening right Mm -hmm. like it's you can't really focus on school Mm -hmm. while you're trying to not you know be homeless because of the landlord right right um but you you just mentioned also um some of the levels of living in the village. Can you, can you tell us about some of those levels or maybe, you know, about the, the health or the safety discourse in the village? Almost every house I lived in, there was books. So the health is not that great and the landlords don't, don't want to pay someone to come get rid of the bugs. Health and safety is really bad. Yeah. It's, the, in, in the one house you were living in, the basement flooded and they just, yeah. They just were like, oh, we're not going to do anything about it. You guys are going to have to deal with it for however long it takes. Mm-hmm. And there's like mold everywhere. Yeah. yeah, no, I recall. Yeah, that was, uh, they had to renovate the entire basement after that. And it affected many people. And it actually uh, kind of ruined, if I'm not mistaken, a couple of the appliances, which were subsequently not covered by the actual landlords. And they failed to act on an emergency and they postponed it. And the situation just got a lot worse. So again, it's uh we're kind of seeing this constant rotation of negligent behavior between landlords and you know this is something that's carried on between multiple different residences in fact in most of my experiences this has been the case and you know i'm certain it has been for you from what you've just told us i i mean and and then i know we've spoken a lot about uh your experience and there's definitely been uh, a few negatives i want to search in last episode or just on tuesday we spoke with some villagers and Emmanuel, he mentioned he had a, like a really positive experience. I want I want to search and see if you had some positive experiences and if you could tell us about those. I would say the only positive experience that was positive for ninety percent of the time was the last place I was in before I moved out of the village. Mm-hmm. So this guy, he basically, you know, he did all the typical landlord stuff. He took his security deposit and first and last month's rent and all that, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, it's standard with the village. It's always going to be like that. So I give him that, and I'm living there for six months, seven months, and then he's like, oh, I want to raise the rent because, you know, everybody else's lease is coming to an end soon, so I want to raise the rent for everybody, and he's like, I'm going to raise the rent, and I'm basically like, that's not going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you're not not raising the rent for me. 
not gonna happen it's not the end of my lease and then so like three months later it's nearing the end of the lease and he's like i'm gonna raise the rent by like 150 dollars." so he was raising it to 800 because i was only paying uh 650 before wow, and he was trying to he's doing that to everybody who lives there it's a massive jump that's a massive and yeah. and you know you mentioned that you you didn't want to pay that like what i was, was like absolutely not yeah so i was told him i'm moving out because like I got I got another place, so I'm moving out. Mm-hmm. And basically, when I told him that, he got pretty pissed off, and it was like, "Oh, you're breaking the lease, so you have to you have to pay me two thousand dollars because that's that's the penalty for breaking the lease." <laughs> He's like, "It's on the lease and everything. It's not on the lease. I have the lease as well." He's mm-hmm. just, you know, trying to use scare tactics to get money out of people. Mm-hmm. And I'm just basically like, "That's not gonna happen. Forget it. Mm-hmm. Just leave me alone. Don't text me about it ever again." And you know, ask me. It seems like, I, I, I don't want to keep rambling about it, but it seems like there were a lot of issues, um, specifically dealing with like landlords. Um, did those ev- issues ever kind of snowball and turn into legal issues or legal challenges? Only with the first landlord, because they stole $720 from me. Mm-hmm. They stole the last month's rent mm-hmm. and, and the key security deposit, even though I gave them the keys. Okay. And for people, for people who might be, you know, dealing with, um, you know, again, snowballing challenges, uh, things that might end up being coming legal issues. How did you deal with them? And, and how might, like, what advice would you give to, to people who might be dealing with them? Well, basically it just took a lot of time. It takes a lot of, it takes up a lot of your time because you've got to fill out when you go to the landlord and tenant board and you, there's a specific form for like each specific problem so you've got to fill out in detail what happened and you've got to get all your proof together right Mm -hmm. and then you've got to go there and get legal advice and then they give you a a court date space and then you go to court and the landlord either shows up or doesn't and in my case i had to inform the landlord that i was taken into court Mm -hmm. court didn't do it for me i had to go to their house and give them a letter like put it in the mailbox and that 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 court case took a year and a half because they were citing health problems every single time there was a court date and just pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. Yeah, and I think that's kind of one of the biggest challenges with uh, kind of, I, I guess, plans set in place for landlord and tenant conflicts, right? Uh, it's, and the thing is, like, you can't even call the police or anything if you're being displaced, as you know, you, you've experienced and so have I. Yeah, they just say it's a civil issue and there's nothing they can do. Exactly. So they have, like, they have no legal uh, responsibility for it, essentially, and they can't really interject in any way uh, with the issue. It has to be all be filed to the LTB, which is time consuming and it doesn't really establish uh, or doesn't really address the issue for that. Uh, immediate time right because most of these situations uh, being forced displaced it's it is really an emergency and you know you and I are not the first ones to be victim of this too yeah and the landlord and tenant board actually can't force them to pay you if you win the court case they they tell them to right but that they can't legally make them do it you have to take them to small court court small court claims Small claims court, sorry. Small claims court, small claims court. That's actually very, very interesting. I, I didn't know that the landlord ten, tenant board didn't have a, like, quote unquote, like the teeth, I guess, to, to, to make it so that landlords would have to pay um, the tenant, or especially when the tenants successfully won the case. You know, all of this brings up, I, I think, a lot of issues. Um, and, and what you spoke about a lot was often, you know, rent increasing, poorly managed, I guess, like residential spaces, which 
you know, makes you bring like, why wouldn't they just invest a little bit of money in managing these spaces better to make them better and, and maybe improve the living conditions so that they might actually, you know, merit earning a little bit more money or merit earning or getting a little bit more rent or at least doing it, you know, legally or abiding by whatever the, the rent increase codes are. But I guess this brings us to joy. And we wanted to speak a little bit about the economics of rooming housing because that's that's all involved there. Uh, but first, we, we kind of wanted to know, you know, what prompted your interest in rooming houses? Well, you know, it started with my own experience uh, coming to Toronto as a grad student. I was studying city planning at U of T's downtown campus, and I moved into campus co-op. And, you know, Matthew, when I hear your story, I think such a contrast to my own, because um, I was living in a house that was a kind of a little bit shabby. It's over 100 years old, but uh, with 14 students altogether uh, there. But it was tremendous sense of camaraderie, fair rents, um, cheaper than you would get for the regular residences at U of T at the time. They had uh, five houses together, uh, clustered together. We had a common dining hall for lunches and dinners. You got your own breakfast. Um, so for me, it was, I lived right across campus. It was cheaper than residence. I didn't feel like a kid and I made a few friends for life. So it was, for me, it was a very positive experience. And I went on to live with some of those other people in another privately owned house. Um, and for me, it showed me that living together in shared accommodation could be, isn't always, but could be a very affordable, pleasant alternative for people, particularly people on low incomes. So that was my interest in shared housing, but my interest in affordable housing happened at exactly the same time. I was at planning school. What can be more fundamental uh, to the city's well-being than adequate housing and affordable housing? So I've worked in this field ever since, doing street outreach, Douglas and Sherburne. Uh, I worked in co-op housing for a long time. I now do consulting and advocacy. And again, it's very clear that in Toronto today, shared housing of whatever type is the only home anyone on social assistance, anyone on minimum wage, anyone living just on the old age pension, and of course, many students can afford. So as, as Maddie said, when we started off, I'm interested in city policies that help preserve and increase the supply of what can be deeply affordable quality housing, but often isn't. And recently I've been looking at the economics of rooming houses. What does it actually cost to deliver good quality shared housing? And to answer the questions about our landlords gouging, is this what it really costs? How does the um, economics affect behavior of landlords? But also how does it affect city policies? Because if the money doesn't work, mm -hmm. then people will find a way to subvert the policy. I think that's absolutely true. And I, I think uh, we, we, we see that, you know, rooming houses are not permitted in North York, or I guess after a 2013 harmonization plan, they, they may be, uh, but it's a little bit of a gray area, but there are, there are more rooming houses than, than we could imagine, or multi-tenant houses than, um, you know, there, there were before definitely, and there's 800 homes there, a significant portion have been converted um, from single family homes into, into multi-tenant or rooming houses. So I guess this brings up this idea of in the city of Toronto, what are the kinds of changes in, in you know, the rooming house and or the housing market that you've seen occur over the last little bit of time? Oh, well, changes globally. I think the biggest housing change and the change in the housing market has been the financialization of housing. So, I mean, I'm just looking at my own lifetime, you know, for homeowners, your house used to be your home. 
You didn't really have an expectation of getting a windfall when you downsized. Mm. Now, decline of unions, decline of good pensions, your house is your retirement plan. Yes. And then you have this problem of a lot of older people still in big houses because there's no place for them to downsize. If you rent, then your home is someone else's pension plan. And in the last two decades, we've seen the rise of REITs, real estate investment trusts, where the business model is to raise rent as high as you can, nudge out low-income uh, tenants, and replace them with higher-income tenants. And when you can't raise rents anymore, get out. So the whole market has shifted. So I just learned um, across Canada in the last uh, three to four years, the rent in private sector housing has increased at triple the rate of, the rate of inflation. So that's what's happening on the financial side. I think the other thing, big thing that's happened is the geography of poverty. So rooming houses used to be a downtown thing. Now downtown rooming houses are being torn down and converted into chi micro units or being redeveloped altogether mm -hmm. and are thriving in the suburbs, whether they are legal or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's not a student issue particularly, but it's kind of the environment in which you live. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, ur new urbanized developments, you know, everyone is looking to try to become, you know, lean more towards centrality and, you know, that's just raising the demand and people are going to, you know, be interested in that demand and, you know, pay whatever it is in order for a situation yeah. to that access, you know. Uh, but, you know, kind of kind of moving forward a bit here. So last time we spoke, we uh, spoke about establishing a house to code. Um, so do you think you could kind of uh, provide an idea of where some of the costs and Kind of what role do these economics play in shaping uh, the tenants lived experiences? Yeah, well, there's there's a couple of things going on. Maybe I'll just talk a little bit about operating costs as well. Um, because what I learned to operate a really good quality rooming house, it's not really a get rich quick prospect. So I studied 79 rooming houses, so 549 rooms altogether that were run by nonprofit organizations. Okay, so no profit motive at all. They're mostly houses that are bought like 30 plus years ago, yeah. no mortgage, no property taxes. And the median cost was still $427 per month. No capital cost at all. Yeah. Just, just paying, you know, heat, hydro, maintenance, insurance, those kinds of costs. But for private operators and recently bought houses, the, the, the real cost depends on the size of the mortgage. And then, you know, when, when did they buy in to the market? Because that they're gonna be paying that mortgage and that's their number one cost. Mm -hmm. But to bring uh, your question of uh, cost of bringing the houses to code, mm -hmm. the challenge is, is that unlike apartment buildings, most houses are built as single family homes. Yes. And the code requirements are very different from those are rooming houses. So again, using a nonprofit example, this is a downtown house, it's a five bedroom house, three stories, uh, it's in good condition. It costs $200,000 to install the fire separations and the commercial sprinkler system that was needed. And that's downtown where rooming houses are legal. So now what I'm doing is looking at, that's one kind of built form. But what does it cost for a typical suburban rooming house to be brought up to code? And so I'm trying to find individual houses where I get some information, enough to get a code consultant and an architect to look at it and determine how much it would cost. And 
if I can make a bit of a plug, I would love to do a study of a house in the village. So I see Matthew's nodding away. So if any of your listeners would be willing, here's what I need. I need a floor plan. I need a photo from the outside. I need to know the number of rooms rented. And I'd like to know what tenants are paying per month. So I don't know if they can contact you to contact me, but I would be very, very interested in an example from the village. Oh well, yeah, I guess to all of our listeners right now for this podcast, uh, please feel, uh, feel free to reach out to us, uh, YBHA.ca, and we'll put you into contact uh, with Joey here. Yeah. Thank you. And we're at yorkvillagehousing at gmail.com. Please shoot yeah. us an email. And Daria, I just wanted to, to ask another question. We're, we're talking about like the economics of rooming houses, how much it actually costs for landlords and some of the problems you know, that that's, you know, Matt and, and or students were facing um, dealing with housing. But I'm, I'm just curious to know, what were the kind of things that students maybe mentioned that they actually wanted in housing? Like, what were the things that they, they, they sought after when they decided that they wanted to go rooming, to rooming housing? Uh, and then Matt, I think we're going to ask you to follow up with a question later as well. All right. Uh, so I'll first uh, talk about what the students said and then finish with a little bit of a commentary of my own. And what we heard from the students first and foremost is affordable on-campus housing affordable on-campus housing it's it's every single focus group every single student because if there were enough beds that were actually affordable then all of these experiences with predatory landlords high rent uh long commute times any other issue that i identified is is averted in the first place, right? And what we heard students say is, we want to be students, right? And being a student at the core of it, from what we hear, is having access to affordable human housing, right? Because without that, you have to work more. You can't focus on your academics. You can't focus on your extracurriculars. And something that we heard students criticize endlessly, and this is across the board, is the new university private partnership housing model. They said they're building these condo-like structures, whereas there's, there's already a student housing crisis at our university, there's not enough beds. And the new de- beds that they're building is in partnership with these private corporations that are like modern top of the line luxury condos with with gyms and swimming pools and and the cost is actually like also like like renting a condo yeah. right and one student said uh, you know gosh darn it we just want normal housing for normal students yeah. and and this is what we heard across the board we don't want this arcade top of the line because only a certain group of students can access that mm-hmm. that's this is not for us the university is not doing anything for us right so one thing is that second thing is that they said they want help from their universities about predatory landlords they want that legal because not every student has a lawyer in their family not every student has access to people who can maybe intimidate the landlord or say like this is and this is me this is my commentary there is a humanitarian crisis happening right under the nose of universities and policymakers in the city. It's, it's right there and it's rampant. With the neoliberalization of the university and of government, they're saying if, if the university is run like a private business, this is what ends up happening. Yeah. Uh, and again, this is, this is my commentary. And, and, and they're saying, oh, you know, 
uh, tuition fees are going to go up and we have to think of the bottom line and we're going to build these new public partnership, private partnership models. But when it comes to advocating for students who are paying us an obscene amount, then it's, it's their responsibility, it's their individual responsibility. And I think that this is both a call to university administration and policymakers in the city to address this crisis that is happening right under their nose. Yeah, that's the that's that was my commentary. So that's. Uh, I think I think also with you know, York has and we've mentioned this before. Very large international student body. Um, we have a very large extra local student body. We're we're a commuter school, and yeah. we we actually spoke about this with Bri on June 9th, uh, Bri Hamilton and Sarah Levy, and and being in that that position, right? Like when you do secure housing, or when you do, or you're trying to the level of compromise that you know you're, you're playing at, and then the insecurity associated with actually living in that housing. It, it's just. It is overwhelming, or at least in my experience, it was overwhelming. And I could imagine it is not, maybe not overwhelming, but at least challenging, uh, again, to students that are, are just trying to go to university and just trying to be students. And I think, I think that that is a big problem. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the key word that came up was is, is precarity, right? You're constantly thinking is, you know, you're already in a transitory kind of housing situation, right? Most of the time it's, it's eight months or four months, right? and the constant financial and mental struggle of moving mm -hmm. and also stuff like that, like Matthew talked about and experienced, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not only like, okay, at least for these four months, I'm good. Mm -hmm. No, there, there, there's so much illegal activity happening uh, mm -hmm. that that's led by landlords that's, that's happening in the city and that, that students are experiencing, right? Mm -hmm. So this, and it takes a massive, massive toll yeah. uh, on students' mental well-being. One student said, we, we asked this question about mental well-being and she was like what mental well-being i don't i don't have none and every every issue i have i can relate it back to housing and i thought that was really striking i think i yeah i can i can it definitely reflects some hard things because I, I completely agree right um it's it's the place you go to it's the base it's your shelter uh if you look at like maslow's hierarchy it's it's it's, a, it's the foundation of that hierarchy right it's it's those things you need before you can go and achieve, you know, those goals. Like, I, I want to be more educated, right? You can't do that if you don't know uh, if you're going to be able to sleep well tonight. Or it's, it's just significantly harder. It's a big problem. But Matt, we did want to ask uh, you, we're talking a lot about, you know, the problems in the village again. But what are some of the things that you wish you could have seen change in the village, uh, either while you're there or that you wish you could see change right now? Well, I think the issue with having 20 people living in a house really needs to change. Because... Sure, they provide a kitchen and a fridge for you to, you can, in theory, buy groceries, right? Mm -hmm. But not when 20 other people are trying to store their stuff there as well. The kitchen's not built for that, right? The house isn't built to support 20 people all trying to live their individual life, right? Because they've split it up with their fake walls and everything. And I think that is something that really, really needs to change. Yeah, yeah. I, agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the whole 20 people is absolutely outrageous and you know it doesn't really create a sense of privacy and also you know it might actually you know kind of provoke the mental stability of many students who are trying to just you know live peacefully and not live fear of potentially you know some altercation happening in between people that you may not even know right especially people who are new to these you know off-campus student housing uh it's a really crazy experience and you know yeah. speaking from i guess personal experience and i guess on your behalf here matt it's uh it is, it is quite challenging at first and, you know, the precarity of it is absolutely astounding and, mm -hmm. the, you know, the minimal amount of 
help from the university and even yeah. the city of Toronto is absolutely ridiculous. I think I think a lot of what ends up happening is that the burden of, you know, ensuring that students are okay or ensuring that tenants are okay is just offloaded onto those very people, right? And if you are an individual who are who's dealing with mental health issues or physical health issues, you, you're you know, you're an individual who has uh, you know, a criminal record or criminal past or you're an international student that doesn't necessarily have the same footing as somebody who's a domestic student. Like all of those are disadvantages. And there are very few supports for those people, specifically off campus, but even on campus at times, right? So it, it, it's difficult to see those accommodations. But no, thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. I think we have the last question here for Joy. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Uh, well, so uh, Joy, what are the methods in which we can disseminate information regarding student housing across the GTA? Uh, what, what recommendations could you make in terms of uh, information gathering, kind of, I guess, sending a message uh, to establish these reparations in the student housing crisis? Well, I think you're already doing it. The city is uh, looking again at rooming house policy. That's something that's going to be coming up uh, fairly soon. Um, there will be opportunities for consultation and I hope people participate. I know it's not easy. The students who kind of come in, they're brand new to the city. They don't know about committees at City Hall and so forth. I would actually commit to making sure that you folks were informed um, and for you to pass out the word um, among your colleagues and friends um, to, make, to engage you in that process. So that is coming up um, as an opportunity. I mean, what really strikes me to this whole conversation is the themes of legality and scarcity. The legality issue is that you have people all over the city who, in fact, are already protected by property standards, by bylaws. These things already exist, but they cannot exercise their rights, either because they don't know them, all the issues that you've talked about, or they're afraid. They're afraid that if they speak up, that the city is going to swoop down and say, oh, this is a legal house, and out you go. So that's the concern. And the scarcity is the fundamentals, because as long as there's not enough housing to go around, it's a scarce commodity, landlords will charge, not what it costs, which is what I'm researching, but whatever they can get. And to me, that's, those are the two fundamentals. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with the quick turnover rate between students entering in and out of houses and, you know, it's, it's just a huge money scheme for landowners who, you know, have people come in, in and out, in and out. And, you know, it's like they've created this really malicious business where they kind of extract uh, the most capital out of students with outrageous rent prices. And since, you know, and people are, are not complacent, but they feel like since their uh, tenure at the university or in the house is limited, uh, they say, okay, I'm just going to deal with it. It'll be over soon and so on and so forth. And then this is where we see this vicious cycle, right? Keep on repeating mm -hmm. itself over the last X amount of years at mm -hmm. York University and across the city of Toronto, mm -hmm. um, at other recognized universities. So yeah, I mean, I guess you make a really uh, great point on that. Yeah, and I, I think I think that was all that, that we had uh, in terms of questions. Um, do, do, do any of y'all, uh, uh, Joy, Daria, Matt, do y'all have some questions for us at all? Or? Uh, if I can uh, make a final comment related to the, to the point that you, um, Joy, and you guys were making, mm -hmm. and, and in terms of what the students are doing and what they want from universities, mm -hmm. I think the saddest, saddest part of our research was when we asked the question, what do you want from universities? And hearing all of the answers, affordable housing, good transportation, tuition fee freeze or, or reduction, uh, help with predatory landlords, help with legality, right? 
all of those things and then a five second pause and uh, they're not going to do it. It costs money. They're not going to do it. And I think that this distrust in a public institution, in a public educational institution is very, very alarming. And it shows that students are very well aware that the university is being run like a private business. And that if it costs money, even if it's going to significantly improve your mental well-being, academic participation, extracurricular activities, there is this sense, this strong sense that um, they're not going to do it. Yeah, we can talk about it here, but I don't think they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that this, is, this was something that was very alarming. Yeah, the inaction of the university is quite astounding. And you know what? And, you know, especially since, you know, tuition fees are so, you know, ridiculous, especially international students students who actually pay like quadruple the fees. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, international students actually fund the uh, University of Toronto University more than the actual government of Ontario does, which is astounding in essence because, you know, with all that extra capital that the universities are getting, they could easily reinvest it into the futures and accommodations of these students who are trying to just seek like a regular university experience in essence. So, I mean, yeah, you raise a lot of good points there. And, you know, I, I think, I think also the, the gap, you know, like whether it's the gap produced from the housing crisis or, you know, we're talking conceptually the gap between where students ideally want to be and where they really, really are. I think that gap really shapes, you know, that opinion of, okay, the university's not going to do it because it costs money because they see where they want to be and they see where they are. Right. And they see, what the university is and where, 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 you know, its goals are and where its objectives are aligned and they see what they've actually received from the university. So you, as a student, I personally am really internalized that, um, in a lot of my coursework when I'm, when I'm doing it, it's, it's just a part of the way that I write and, and a part of the way that I think, and it's, it's really, really become a part of that process. And I think that speaks a lot to, to how much, uh, like the process of neo, like neoliberal universities, the process of neoliberalization in universities, uh, how much of a downwards force um, that place is not just on students' ability to access housing or, or any tenant's ability to access housing, but also uh, the downwards forces on their well-being and their, their psychological and mental health and their ability to respond to these things, you know, as human beings. I think it takes a lot of the humanity out of it. So um, thank you so much for adding that, Daria. Uh, and thank you so much, yeah, everybody. Thank you. thank you so much, Joy. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you so much uh, <laughs> for joining us. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure yeah. speaking with y'all. This was, this was the greatest flow thus far. So yeah, 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 really, yeah. really appreciate it, y'all. A total pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Pleasures are all ours. Thank you so much. Andrew and Nati, Joy and Matthew, it was really nice meeting you as well. And thank you for sharing. And I, I, I learned a lot from, from both of you. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm really glad to hear it. Uh, yeah, and, you know, we, we will uh, let you know the announcement of the podcast date and when it's released, and we'll keep you tuned in. All right, take care, everyone. Thank you all. Awesome. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Wow. Um, I feel like that was a really big... Uh, Quite a big segment, I'd say. Yeah, we um, spoke but, about a lot. Yeah, and, you know, it was really great having Matt there uh, as a fellow villager to, to essentially... Not essentially established a narrative on what it's like to be a student living down there on behalf mm. of, of both of our experiences as well. Mm. Uh, I feel like it really helped Daria enjoy essentially established a mindset or kind of like an idea of what the rooming like, uh, what the rooming situation is like in terms of precarity and the village at York. Yeah, it. I, I think that conversation like really uh, struck some chords, especially Matt's stories and his experiences with his landlord, but, but also when Daria was articulating, you know, what students were saying 
Um, that, that very real gap that I was touching on right at the end, I think it's shaped by, you know, the lack of awareness. It's shaped by the, the, the lack of ability. It's shaped by the lack of affordability. But it, it, it's something that can be changed. It's not impossible, right? And, and the fact that even students at this point are, are becoming pessimistic uh, about their housing situations and about the actual change that they can enact, I, I, I think that, that that's really where the biggest concern is, right? Um, and I think that that's what we're trying to do is trying to change that pessimism, show people that, you know, just using your voice, expressing yourself and taking your lived experience, that standpoint epistemology and bringing it into, you know, the, the realm of academia, into the private market and, and talking to people and showing them that this is what the actual impact is, right? Uh, that, that can encourage change. And I think, I think that that was the biggest takeaway. I think that can eliminate that scarcity uh, that Joy was speaking about and it can get rid of some of the fears that students are dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with, uh, you know, and even, you know, that, that last statement by Daria actually, you know, almost gave me chills, uh, you know, because it's, it's sad, but it's true. The university doesn't really have much of much to say or much to interject with the problems associated with student housing. And, you know, with like, even as a, as a, uh, as a graduate from York university, uh, I just fear for the, every single student who seeks residence in that area, because I just, I mean, Despite some positive experiences, most of them, I, I don't want to say this, but most of them aren't that great as we've, mm. you know, seen throughout the series of these podcasts. Yeah. And I think, I think the, the real key thing here is, uh, you know, like, I think Mad's situation is relatively an exception. I don't imagine everybody's living situation in the village is like that, um, as, as we learned, you know, in our last episode on Tuesday. But, but I really do think that it is those negative experiences, no matter how great how positive your experiences are because you're getting an affordable place or you know, you're with your peers or with like-minded people, no matter how amazing those three components are near campus. If you can't sleep at night, if you end up having to face a legal challenge that is a year and a half, and if you are moving um, between seven different places in, in you know, a year or in five months, it really puts it, it dulls those experiences. It dulls all the positive. It really, really almost negates it. And I think that that is, what we're talking about in terms of negative experiences. Not that this is a negative place to live. It's a great place to live. This is a great community. We're great people. The future, as a matter of fact, of, of what I think is York University is the people who live in the village, right? But it's really, really undermined by all of those negative experiences. And it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, I couldn't have said it more accurately myself in that regard. But before we take off, a little disclaimer here. Oh, yeah. Um, hopefully, y'all can hear it in our voices. We are definitely not uh, legal experts or a legal entity. Um, we, we're actually just villagers. We're people who are trying to help other people uh, that live in the village at York University and or in, in housing in the city of Toronto uh, improve their living conditions. And if you want to learn more about your rights as a tenant, feel free. Visit us at ybha.ca. Go to the Ontario government website at ontario.ca page renting your rights. Uh, the Landlord and Tenant Board Tribunal at sjto.gov.on.ca. Uh, and the Federation of Metropolitan Tenants Association Toronto at torontotenants.org. If you want to learn more about student and or multi-tenant housing, uh, you know, go to York University's website at studenthousing.info.yorku.ca. And you can also lo learn more about the student housing and health support systems in the village through our website at ybha.ca and our email at yorkvillagehousing.gmail.com. Uh, be sure to send us your story of and your lived experience in the village because you get to enter into a chance uh, to win one of 10 custom YVHA t-shirts. You can email us at yorkvillagehousing at gmail.com, on Facebook at Housing York, 
Instagram at YorkVHA and Twitter at Housing York. And if you live in the village, why not take that extra step and join our private group? It's York Village Housing Association at York Village Housing Association. And go even further, register your home, help us get a little bit of information so we can help Joy, so that we can help Louisa uh, and the Student Well TO Project and the economics of housing to help them actually propose accurate and substantive and you know worthy recommendations that will make a positive change for people living in housing in the city of Toronto. All right, and I guess, yeah, that wraps up for today. Thanks for joining us on series four of the LaVille podcast. I'm Andrew. And I'm Matthew. That's LaVille.